welcome to another episode of Poem Peeps. Ferf and I can't wait for another mystery case. Hey everybody, thanks for listening again. We're really excited to be here back again with the case and we're super excited to be joined by a new guest. This is Emily Friedemaker. Hi everybody. Absolutely. Um, Emily is a pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine fellow at the University of Kentucky College of Medicine. She went to medical school at West Virginia School of Medicine and did her internal medicine residency at Charleston Area Medical Center. Welcome again, Emily. Thank you guys for having me. I've been, you know, all through fellowship have hoped for a pulmonary podcast because there's so many like critical care resources. And so you guys have filled that gap nicely. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Good. Yeah, that was our goal. Good to know that we're we're covering it. Uh, so since you're a new guest to the show, you know, and the most important things that all of us do are hopefully outside of the hospital, we'd love to just get to know you a bit. So what are your favorite things to do sort of outside of medicine, outside of the hospital? Um, I'm a homebody even outside of COVID. So I spend pretty much all my time outside of the hospital at home with my husband and my little boy. And um, I like to read and cook and bake and be warm under blankets and drink tea. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like all the great things. That's awesome. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, just as a disclaimer, um, I can say by by your Twitter, Emily, that um, Furf and I are um, n- come nowhere near your baking skills, but I'm excited <laughs> for your expertise, both in baking as well as in pulmonary and critical care. Um, but before we get started, just to remind everyone, um, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice, and the views we express today do not reflect the opinions or policies of our respective employers. The case we present today will be HIPAA compliant, and some details may have been changed to protect the privacy of our patient. Great. So, Emily, it sounds like you had a really interesting case recently. So why don't you tell us a little bit about this patient? Yeah. So this patient is a middle-aged woman, um, and she's presenting to the ER with a few weeks of mild but progressive shortness of breath. Um, she says that over the past two or three weeks, uh, she's noticed mild but progressive shortness of breath. Um, it's mostly with exertion. She can still get around in her house and get groceries, but it's definitely noticeable and not normal for her. She has also had some fevers and some night sweats. She's noticed worsening fatigue. Um, her fevers have been as high as like 100.8, mostly low grade. But the most concerning thing for her have been these night sweats. And then this morning, she woke up drenched and with a fever, and that's what prompted her to go to the ER. Uh, That's been a great history so far, um, Emily, and I'm trying to kind of think about how I would start to build a framework for this patient. And I'm really thinking of three big categories right now, Uh, the first being an infection um, at the top of the differential, but the other two categories being inflammatory and malignancy. I would say from the time course that you um, told us about, um, it's a bit atypical for malignancy, but does not completely rule it out. And always important to remember not to forget rare etiologies, such as an underlying endocrinopathy. So, for example, hyperthyroidism could present um, similar to this as well. Yeah, and I think this like history is just super interesting of the night sweats really concerning her. I feel like that's one of these things that the symptom depends on the patient. You know, like some people sweat when they sleep. <laughs> I feel like I ask patients, they're like, I always sweat. And some people like that is so atypical and they'll notice it. And, and I actually uh, remember someone teaching me once that like headaches are the same thing. Like there are people who just don't get headaches, you know, and then when they have a headache and they come to the hospital, you know, really raises a red flag as opposed to the person who has it every day. 
Yeah, I feel um, like I always have to qualify the night sweats because when you ask people about night sweats, they're like, yeah, I sweat like when it's hot. And I always have to qualify them with like, no, you're waking up like you need to change your sheets and you're like wet everywhere, not just kind of sweaty. Right. Totally. Totally. So, you know, from uh, everything you said, just like Monty was saying, you know, I think infection certainly is the top of the differential, you know, with those other categories being considered. And so when I'm thinking about the history I'm going to get for this patient and additional questions, I'm really thinking about the substrate, you know, the patient, uh, who they are, their exposure uh, and what they could be exposed to, and then the pathogens that I'm most concerned about based on the symptoms. So I try to ask questions to clarify what's the patient's underlying immune status, what do they do for a living, what are they exposed to in the community, are they sort of the typical patient, or I have to think about more atypical pathogens or atypical diseases. And then I try to get this constellation of symptoms that trigger for me, you know, who, what are these pathogens? So they have a rash on their hands. Okay, now there's a whole different differential I'm going down. So that's sort of how the history I'm going to elucidate from these patients will go from here. Yeah. I think another um, important part of history is the timing. Um, And it can also be a difficult skill to develop as far as like being able to get a timeline um, from a patient. And so when I have trouble like nailing down a timeline or establishing chronicity of a symptom, I try to ask the patient when was the last time that they felt totally like their normal selves. And then I start um, like helping them to build their story from there. Um, And I think that can help a lot. So as far as our patient goes, I feel like with the timing, you know, your kind of typical viral and bacterial pneumonias, you would you would think more of like um, days to about a week of illness before presentation, not this kind of like indolent, you know, two to four weeks, been sick for a little while. Um, so I feel like that timing alone, uh, you kind of have to broaden your differential beyond the normal pathogens and processes. Yeah, totally. That that sounds exactly in line with what I would be thinking or what I am thinking. Um, So, you know, the other thing in terms of infection, you know, I like to try to find some localizing symptoms that could help me find it. You know, fever and night sweats are pretty general, but right now the dyspnea is the one localized symptom that we have. And dyspnea can be nondescript. It can happen just in general illness and, and fatigue. But it can also be a a hint to the infection line in the lungs or cardiovascular system or anything else that is impacting their oxygenation and their shortness of breath. So I'd like to get some more history from this patient. What was your exercise capacity like before all this? You know, are they sure this is an acute process or has this been going sort of slowly decreasing uh, exercise tolerance? Do they have a cough? Do they have chest pain? If they do have chest pain, is it pleuritic and when did it come on? And then uh, asking about other symptoms that could help give us some hints about the pathogen. Do they have GI symptoms along with this? Do they have symptoms for meningitis that are going to raise my suspicion for diseases that can cause that constellation? All good questions. So let me give you a little more of her history. Um, So she says that in addition to this recent history of the shortness of breath and the fevers, she has had a two-year history of neurologic abnormalities. um, And that is primarily some slurred speech and some coordination difficulties. And she's been going through a long workup. Um, Her working diagnosis right now is CIDP, though this hasn't been confirmed. She has started to seek treatment in Mexico due to cost. So she's doing a lot of traveling back and forth there. She last traveled to Mexico about a month ago, and she said that she did have a URI uh, when she came back with like cough and congestion, but that improved some before all of these symptoms started. 
In addition to the sweats and fevers, she's also had an unintentional weight loss of about 10 pounds over the past few weeks. As far as her dyspnea goes, like we talked about earlier, she does feel winded with exertion and it's worsened to where she's short of breath even getting around the house. And her husband has noticed and has started to say like, you know, you seem like you're breathing kind of hard just walking around. She has had a cough. It's non-productive. It's been pretty mild, but it seems to be getting more frequent over the last week or so. And she has not had any headaches, vision changes, um, joint pains, hemoptysis, GI symptoms, rashes, or lymphadenopathy that she has noticed. Well, that's a lot of information um, to go through, Emily. And and first, I want to say, I think you're going to bring out my Texas accent through this. um, (laughs) (laughs) Yay! As we go along. Um, But some some interesting things, um, I think, definitely are the travel history to Mexico. Um, and then um, this brings up a great kind of question. Will be interesting to to know about further treatment for um, CIDP or chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy. Um, so it's really interesting to know if these abnormalities are related or not. And you know exactly like I said, what treatment has she received? You know she has fevers, night sweats, and weight loss, which in in and of itself is a differential. And again, really the only the localizing symptoms have been to the lungs. So I think we can start um, based on this, building a differential within our categories. So still common things being common, a community-acquired pneumonia um, that has been untreated, um, possibly with a complication like an abscess or empyema should be considered. Uh, We can also think of endocarditis with the more indolent course, as you mentioned. Um, And then I think we're probably all thinking about TB being a classic illness that presents this way and should be considered. And anytime you think of TB, I always tend to think um, of HIV as well. So would want to know what her HIV status is. Definitely. And, you know, we mentioned travel and we think about tuberculosis, but there's a lot of other like infectious etiologies to think about um, based on where someone has traveled to or where they live. And so we think about like tick-borne, fungal, malaria, typhoid fever, things like that. And you know, a lot of them can have pulmonary manifestations, some more common the, than others. But even outside of, you know, just pulmonary infections, any ongoing infection like this could be enough to cause the fatigue and dyspnea. Yeah, totally agree. And then, you know, just building on that more classic presentation of the fevers, night sweats, and weight loss, and putting the dyspnea aside for a second or ascribing it to some of that chronic illness that's going on, you know, malignancy is high up on the differential there, the classic sort of B symptoms for lymphoma. So it has to be considered, uh, but other solid organ malignancies to be considered as well. And then part of me is going back to the CIDP diagnosis. You know, it's unconfirmed. They're getting some treatments. Maybe that is a misdiagnosis. And this is some unified thing that's been going on and is a flare of a more chronic disease. So maybe they have GPA or they have sarcoidosis, they have lupus, uh, and actually it's been called something differently. Their, their symptoms have been attributed to something differently. And now they're having a flare that's presenting more in the, uh, in the lungs and causing these acute symptoms. So can we get any more information about that diagnosis and, you know, any additional past medical history as well? Yes. So really, um, aside from this possible CIDP, she's pretty healthy. She doesn't have any other past medical history. Um, For the CIDP, though, she has been on prednisone uh, for six months and she's at 10 milligrams now. We don't really know the specifics of um, what dose she was on prior to this, but most recently it has been 10 milligrams. And she was started on azathioprine about a month ago, 150 milligrams. And that was with one of her um, trips to Mexico. Her uh, doctor there prescribed it. 
Um, as far as her social history, um, she's originally from Mexico, but she's lived in rural Kentucky for the last 20 years. Um, she's been to Mexico several times this year. Um, she also does say that she was in a cave last year, um, just kind of recreationally, um, caving with some friends. Uh, she has not been working due to the neurologic symptoms, but she used to work in a candle factory. Um, she's a former smoker. She smoked a pack a day for 20 years and she quit some time ago. Uh, just, you know, occasional social alcohol, uh, no pets, no other notable exposures and no, um, notable family history. Just some casual spelunking here and there. Yeah. <laughs> we do that in Kentucky. Yeah, <laughs> you know, the ter- uh, caving with friends. Um, I'm going to yeah. remember that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but the, the big thing for me here, um, Emily, that you mentioned is really the steroids and the azathioprine. Um, since she's not in immunosuppression, she's definitely at increased risk for some more atypical pathogens that we can think of. Um, you know, I don't want us to forget about um, bacterial as being a cause, um, but the possibility of fungal infections is definitely higher. Um, you know, I think PCP should be considered for sure, although this presentation is a bit atypical as, you know, we tend to think of dysmia. Um, being more common, um, specifically in a non-HIV patient. Um, but s- specific things with azathioprine are reactivation of infections, um, including CMV, HSV, hepatitis B. And then I think we're all still thinking TB should remain high on our differential. Um, uh, Emily, I'm curious, though, what thoughts um, you have with this additional history? I think you covered um, a lot of the important additions to the differential with her immunosuppression. And for us, the recent travel definitely made us consider TB. Um, And you also mentioned fungal infections. So anytime a person is immunosuppressed and is having these like constitutional symptoms, um, kind of a more indolent process, I do also start to think about endemic fungi, particularly in Kentucky, where it's common for people to live on farms and spend a lot of time outside in rural areas and caving and hiking, like we mentioned. It's definitely not uncommon for us to see those here. And she did, you know, mention a trip to a cave. And for board purposes, this always makes me think of histo, um, but I guess it can also be associated with chlamydia, sitaki, sitaci. Citizen. Yeah, I don't even know how. <laughs> the bird one, the one that I always think of parrots. <laughs> totally. Yeah, that's an amazing point that I think we just have to always take into context where we are. And it's so interesting hearing the things that other places think about. I was just doing a book chapter with somebody and we we're talking about respiratory, respiratory failure. And they were like, well, we have to include meliodosis, you know, and they were practicing in, you know, Singapore. And so, you know, it's very, whatever is around you, you know, common things being common up here where I am, like Lyme disease, if they come in with fevers, everybody gets to oxy right away. So I think that's a really great point. Uh, so on to the physical exam. All right. So her exam, her blood pressure was 109 over 89. Heart rate was 106. Um, to Kipnik at 28 breaths a minute, her oxygen was 85% on room air and she was febrile at 100.6. Um, on exam, she was hypoxic. She was to uh, diaphoretic and tachycardic, but otherwise her exam was pretty normal. Yeah. So it sounds like the big news here is the hypoxemia. You know, we, the fever is not a surprise. They've been telling us that tachycardia also, you know, to be expected with a, with a fever. 
However, up until now, we've been wondering and kind of talking about, is this a pulmonary process, something going on in the lungs, or is this uh, dyspnea she's been having sort of been run down, fatigue, systemic illness? And I think being on hypoxic on room air down to 85% really makes me think there's definitely something going on in the lungs. We're definitely going to have to do more investigation of that. I don't think it helps me narrow the differential uh, too much, aside from just saying that Whatever infectious processes is, I'm expecting I'm going to find something when we uh, when we image the lungs. And then just one thing to note, sort of fit on the physiology side of things, she's both tachypneic and still hypoxemic, which is just always important. You know, we think of tachypnea as a sign of just distress, but even uh, in terms of their hypoxemia, it makes me a lot more worried about their gas transfer and their AA gradient. So you know, a patient who is tachypneic, but satting normally, say 95%, probably has some impaired oxygenation, right? They're hyperventilating and they still uh, are hypoxemic. And you can actually, you know, sort of go through your AA gradient and see if they're blowing down their CO2, what their uh, calculated alveolar oxygen should be, and then calculate the AA gradient. But it's just something to note that I, I had a mentor always said, you know, you can't comment on gas exchange in someone who's breathing 28 times a minute, uh, because even if they have normal oxygenation, it may not be normal gas transfer. So one thing I would definitely want with the labs that I'm sure we're going to get is an ABG just to assess that more fully. Yep. So her labs on presentation, she had a white count of two um, and the diff showed 85% neutrophils, 12% lymphocytes and no EOs. Hemoglobin was 14 and platelets were 200. Notable things on her BMP, her sodium was 129, her potassium was normal and her renal function was normal um, and her bicarb was 22. Her ALT was 77, AST was normal, and her blood gas, uh, her pH was 753, um, her CO2 was 25, and her PO2 was 47. Yeah, I think that's um, really interesting. I think kind of to add on what you said for, for about the, you know, tachypnea and the hypoxemia, you know, I think her evidence, the ABG is showing us evidence of both hyperventilation with associated hypoxemia. So definitely interesting. Um, regarding her CBC, I am concerned about the leukopenia, which either could be from her disease process itself, from the azathioprine or a combination of the two. And lastly, regarding her chemistries, um, she does have notable hyponatremia with an elevated ALT, which sometimes can be seen in pulmonary infections. And the one I'm thinking about the most with that, um, both abnormalities, um, we can actually see Legionella infection. Um, Emily, but I think probably what we're all wondering is what does the imaging show? Yes. So x-ray showed diffuse reticulonodular infiltrates. And then the CT scan was done, and it showed diffuse bilateral micronodular infiltrate in a miliary pattern with mediastinal and hilar lymphadenopathy. All right. So this is really cool imaging. So if you follow us on Twitter, you'll probably have seen these images, and we'll make sure that they're up again in the show notes. But you know, on the CT, we're seeing a miliary pattern. It's pretty unusual, and, and even sort of really reticulonodular on the x-ray as well. So I, I imagine this must have spurred some discussion. Emily, can you tell us something about this when, when you first saw this uh, scan? Yes. I love the miliary pattern, so I'm <laughs> thrilled to talk about it. it. Um, so the word miliary actually refers, refers to millet siege, which are like tiny little round grains, and that's exactly what it looks like on imaging. So you see innumerable small scattered nodules in a random distribution versus like a central lobular or perilymphatic pattern. 
and I think the most important thing to know about this pattern is that it can um, signify hematogenous spread of a disease rather than um, spread by airways. And so whether that's infection like TB, which is the most common cause of a miliary pattern, or other pathogens like uh, endemic fungi, nocardia, and then there are a few other non-infectious processes that can cause it, like metastatic cancer, lymphoma, and pneumoconiosis. Um, so finding a miliary pattern on your imaging and knowing what it means really does help you narrow down your differential and, and help guide your workup. Yeah, that's that's an awesome list. I'm going to keep that in my back pocket for for the few times I see this uh, to be ready for it. So I, you know, I think this is the time when obviously we'd all just send a slew of labs. No lab is too crazy after this, and then sort of focusing in on uh, th- those pathogens or those uh, etiologies that you mentioned. But one thing that I think comes up in this type of case, someone's febrile, they were pretty hypoxemic, is sort of just empirically treating, you know, you have some imaging now, and oftentimes you'll have to, in the pulmonary consult, sort of say, what are we going to do while we're waiting for these tests to come back? So Monty, what do you think about empiric treatments in this type of situation? Yeah, Ferf, I think that's a really great question. Um, And I think to me, though, it really depends on uh, a couple of things. One, the clinical condition of the patient. Um, exactly as you said, you know, how, how critical are they, you know, how much supplemental um, oxygen are they requiring, et cetera. Um, and the other two things are, you know, how long will it take to perform any diagnostic interventions, such as a bronch or BAL that we want to get, and how long are we, um, how long will it be till we get the results? You know, and I think a broad empiric therapy could be added and, you know, definitely in this case would consider TB coverage in addition to fungal and broad bacterial therapy. Um, however, the decision um, isn't taken lightly, specifically with TB therapies. I know some of our infectious disease colleagues really prefer for us to hold off unless um, the clinical situation proves otherwise. Um, so overall, I, I think if we have time to wait and clar- clarify I, um, a diagnosis, I definitely would. But if push came to shove, this is a differential that may allow for empiric treatment, as we talked about. So in our case, the patient was initially doing okay on nasal cannula, um, but then escalated pretty quickly to high flow and requirements just kept going up. Um, so she was empirically started on RIPE and amphotericin in addition to just cap coverage. Um, she did eventually have an awake bronch that was um, pretty difficult with how much high flow she was on. Um, yeah. And that ultimately showed 47% neutrophils, 25% lymphocytes, and AFB was negative. Um, And we were also really trying to tie in this neurologic abnormality with um, this, what we thought was an infection somehow. So we did an LP and that was totally normal. Um, So ultimately, after several days of, you know, waiting for all these labs to come back, a urine histo antigen came back really positive. Um, Once we got that, we stopped the TB treatment um, and she was treated with AMFO for 14 days and then she was transitioned to itraconazole for maintenance. Uh, And she got a lot better on this. You know, she was seen in clinic after this and her urine histo was downtrending and her CT findings had pretty much cleared. Hmm. Well, I was still thinking um, TB as the highest on my differential, but (laughs) Pulmonary histo, um, that's something we talk about on the differential um, all the time, but rarely see. Um, so briefly to review um, for myself and for, for those listening, um, histoplasmosis is classically seen in soil with bird or bat droppings, which is why we kind of think of caves and attics. Um, 
you know, sometimes Emily, I'm sure you may see it more than um, than Dave and I do up here in the Northeast, but you know, barns and chicken coops um, are the other stories that sometimes um, you may get more than we do. Yeah. yeah. Cleaning out a barn. That's the classic one is somebody was cleaning out a barn and they came in a few <laughs> weeks later. Wow. Yeah. Um, and then geography, um, importance of geography and travel, um, I think is um, important in this case. And you know, Histo can classically be associated with med- Midwestern and Central U.S., as well as the Ohio and Mississippi River Valleys. Uh, most patients are asymptomatic, but those who do get symptoms, usually uh, pulmonary manifestations are the most common. Um, and this usually can present with dyspnea, as well as some of the symptoms that we've talked about, including fevers and chills, myalgias, um, headaches, and this can occur two to four weeks after exposure. Um, The most common finding on imaging are patchy alveolar or nodular infiltrates, um, in addition to lymphadenopathy. And as we know, T-cell immunity is essential for clearance, so immunosuppressed patients are at a higher risk for a disseminated infection or more severe infection, such as our patient. Uh, Over time, lymph nodes will calcify, so calcified nodules are lymph nodes can also be a sign of prior infection. Yeah, we see a lot of like the calcified nodes and nodules. um, And we think of them as just like a souvenir of living in Kentucky. Like everybody's (laughs) got a little granuloma on their x-ray and, you know, we'll get sent those people in pulmonary clinic for a nodule and all it is is a granuloma. Um, On the other end of that spectrum, though, is occasionally we'll see broncholiths um, where a lymph node has calcified and it has eroded into the airway and is is causing like a post-obstructive syndrome or um, hemoptysis or or something bad where it does need kind of dealt with. but mostly just the granulomas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, that sounds it sounds intense. Yeah, well, now we should get a shirt that says "I went to Kentucky" and all I got was granulomas. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I would buy one of those. <laughs> so you know, I think important to note also that histo can be acute or chronic in the lungs. Uh, you know, this sounds like it was more of an acute presentation, but the chronic pulmonary form happens most commonly in patients with underlying lung disease, and this can just look a lot like tuberculosis. You know, the patients can have cavities, they can have sort of these calcified uh, granulomas, lymph nodes. Uh, Emily, you mentioned sort of broncholis that can happen. And I think one classic boards question, we're, we're doing some good boards uh, key <laughs> points for this time. Hopefully it helps somebody out. Uh, but a classic boards one for histo is uh, fibrosing mediastinitis or uh, mediastinal granulomas. I think that was on this year, in fact. So kind of to wrap things up for um, this case is, you know, we talked a lot about diagnosis and there are a lot of different ways to diagnose histo. Um, Classically, if you biopsy it, it'll show granulomas and lymphocyte aggregates. Fungal staining can show histo. It's a a dimorphic yeast. So in the body, you'll um, see small yeast forms. Um, And fungal cultures from BAL can be positive, but usually that's in chronic and not your acute disease especially if it's disseminated and being spread hematogenously, you wouldn't necessarily expect the BAL to be positive. It can also take up to six weeks to grow, which isn't ideal if somebody is sick and you're trying to figure out how you need to treat them. Antigen detection, like what we used in this case, is most sensitive if you use both urine and blood, but it's still only 60 to 80% sensitive. Uh, And it can cross-react with blasto. Though this is, you know, most of the cases of histo I've seen have been diagnosed with a urine antigen. Antibody testing can be helpful, and most people in endemic areas are surprisingly not positive, um, though it can be falsely negative in acute illness or in immunosuppressed patients, so you can't totally rely on that either. 
And as far as treatment goes, I think the main thing to remember is that amphotericin and the azoles are your drugs of choice because echinocandins don't have any activity. Um, For moderate to severe cases like our patient had, ampho is the treatment of choice up front. And then after a week or two, when they're clinically improven, you can switch them to itraconazole. Um, And then the itraconazole, it requires a loading dose, and it'll usually be continued for like months to a year in severe disseminated disease. Um, And they'll often like trend the urine histo and make sure that it's going down. That's great. It's really good to point out the things that we would follow along for that. All right. That is an amazing case. I love the imaging differential that we have. Thank you so much, Emily, for joining us. And uh, we're hoping we can each just give our takeaway point. I think I'm going to just take for the miliary pattern that this often represents hematologic spread and maybe not an inherent pulmonary spread. It can, but that's where we worry about in disseminated TB or fungal infections like this. I think my takeaways are knowing your nodule patterns between random and uh, central ovular and uh, perilymphatic and the differential that comes with those, as well as remembering that aconicandins are not the treatment of choice for endemic fungi. Thanks, Emily. And I think my takeaway, um, I was too was going to say the miliary pattern. So hopefully um, those listening today can can get something from that. But I think I will kind of remember first question, um, board review question on histo uh, potentially leading to fibrosing mediastinitis. Love it. Well, thanks, Emily. We really enjoyed having you on Palm Peeps. Hopefully we'll be able to have you back again another time. Yeah, thank you guys. This was fun. Uh, and uh, for everyone listening, make sure you tune in in two weeks for our next episode. Check us out online at palmpeeps.com and follow us on Twitter. Follow Emily on Twitter too. She's got a great <laughs> account. <laughs> As Maji said, good baking tips too. <laughs> uh, and we'll, we'll see you all soon.